welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending June 10th, 2023. This week, Spider-Man whoops Transformers and Fast X. I'm Kim Hollis, who thinks banker boxes are so 2022. <laughs> With me are Tim Brighty, content creator and gamer, podcasting without pants. I mean, not that that's any different from normal, but I put that because I'm on vacation from work next week. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Also, David Mumpower, author of Behind the Ride, streaming media analyst, and proud owner of new Indiana Jones Funko Pops. That's right, including the one with his dad. Yeah, his dad's pretty cute. And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burial, now indicted by the Department of Justice. This may be the wrong time to tell you guys I just sold the podcast to the (laughs) Saudi Public Investment Fund. (laughs) dang it and that was this week geez a a lot happened this week wow holy cow that was only the second biggest story of the week folks (laughs) it's another rough week for warner brothers discovery as they had to fire the ceo of cnn leading to speculation that the cable news network was up for sale. Meanwhile, the rebranded streaming service Max was still suffering from growing pains as the company reported that 70% of past HBO Max customers had made the switch to the new service so far. The sad thing is they're saying 70% beats their projections, which opens up an entirely different can of worms. If they're to be believed, they shouldn't be. They're totally lying. But if they're to be believed, that would mean they thought, you know, it would be fine if we created a new product and one third of our customers didn't actually sign up for it. (laughs) Okay, I have questions. You're an HBO Max subscriber and changes to Max. It doesn't roll over. It didn't just become a Max subscription. You have to sign up separately. Well, you'll, you'll remember this, Tim, as when the new service launched, you had to download and install the new app. The new app, right. What they're indicating is that people have not downloaded and, and installed the new app. They have not signed into the new app with their existing accounts yet. Oh, so they're subscribed to HBO Max and they just haven't used it in the last like three weeks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see the recurrence of Netflix users on the app. Just how frequently does a Netflix user sign into Netflix? My suspicion is that it's probably near 100% that a Netflix user will sign into Netflix at least once every week. The goal of switching HBO Max to Max and bringing in all the Discovery Plus content was that they were trying to turn Max into this destination that you just turn on and, and then you find something to watch. A lot like people do on Netflix, as we've seen in the ratings where you turn on Netflix and then you just watch whatever Netflix tells you you're supposed to watch. And that clearly is not what's happening. What HBO Max was historically was a destination for people to go watch a specific show. Oh, the latest episode of Succession. Oh, the latest blockbuster movie has just come to streaming. You go to HBO Max and you watch it. And that is what is clearly still happening. These users are not launching Max and then determining what to watch. They only go to Max to watch a specific show that they already have in mind. They don't have that retention. They don't have that ability to get someone to watch one thing and then stick around and watch 10 more things. And this is a problem that honestly, every streaming service has except for Netflix. What they're saying is that only seven out of every 10 customers care enough about Max to download the new app when it comes out. And that is just terrifying data. That's basically telling you how little interest there actually is in this product for many of the people who theoretically pay for it, which shows you a lot of the people buying annual subscriptions are not going to renew. And some people are being auto-billed right now. And when they find out that fact at some point, they're going to be owed a lot of money as a refund. It is a disastrous piece of information. It's not even the funniest part of the story to me because CNET actually ran a headline the other day that was along the lines of, should you use the new Max warning? It is extremely buggy. They had a product that didn't work. They spent a year fixing the product and then they threw out that product and brought back a new one that is now having the same 
buggy issues as the original thing. None of this makes sense from a business perspective. Mistakes tend to propagate. They're in the downward spiral. And I will also add that the luckiest person on the planet right now is Chris Licht, who was recently fired by CNN because he had a guaranteed contract. And oh, by the way, there were two other stories this week that are so important that nobody is remembering the fact that he was absolutely humiliated for a period of 48 hours. And it's not like Warner Bros. Discovery was hiding this information. This comes from an interview with the president of global streaming at Warner Bros. Discovery, who is bragging to the Wall Street Journal that 70% of their subscribers had already made the jump to the new streaming service. They think this is a good number, yet it reflects exactly the problem they have. These people only run the app when there's something for them to watch. And in the last two weeks since they launched, 30% of their subscribers who are paying for the service have decided, you know what, there's still nothing on this new service for me to watch. I'll make the jump when something new comes out. And looking at the horizon, like what's the big thing on HBO and Max right now? The Idol, that show got panned. I don't think anyone's watching that. And so for the next several months, that 30% is still not going to have any reason to launch the new app. They're having to lie about this as well. The Idol's numbers came in, were wildly disappointing. And then they were like, well, that's okay. Euphoria started slow as well. Here, let me show you all the things that Euphoria did. The difference is people liked Euphoria. This was a show that was just a debacle behind the scenes. They reset it, and basically their only idea was, hey, let's bring back Skinamax with famous people. That's all the idol has been, and unless there is something down the line that is going to attract more interest, this show is already a failure after one episode. Will that remain? Well, you never really know with Max. I would have said the same thing a long, long time ago about Rome, whose first couple of episodes were just ridiculously boring. And then all of a sudden the show found its footing. But they're having to pretend like they're happy with the results here that anyone with any common sense can say are failure results. In hindsight, Max really needed to launch with with a killer app. They needed something, some big premiere, even if I don't know how far off it is, but like, I don't know, House of the Dragon season two or something that this was just kind of launching in just the middle of May with without anything big and flashy. Not the smartest idea, but I guess we've come to expect that from WBD. Exactly, Tim. That's it. You hit the nail on the head. They had clearly moved up the launch of the new merged streaming service because they were trying to head off some bad news they'd had earlier in the year, but the only consequence of all this is that they've ended up with more bad news. And as David pointed out, this was not the only bad news out of Warner Bros. Discovery, as of course the CEO of CNN, Chris Licht, got fired after a rather damning interview that he had given to The Atlantic, where for about a year since he came in as the new CEO of CNN, a reporter followed him around and basically documented his embarrassing missteps. It was the only thing David Zaslav could do at this point, which was to fire Chris Licht. And yet the truth of the matter is that Chris Licht was basically doing what David Zaslav was directing him to do. And consequently, of course, David Zaslav was taking his marching orders from John Malone, a major shareholder in Warner Brothers Discovery. So Chris Licht is essentially the patsy here, but also he didn't engender himself to anyone. No one at CNN liked him. And he seemed to be pretty arrogant about everything that he was doing. So it was inevitable that he was he was on his way out after that interview interview dropped. And the consequences of all this is that people are now talking about how Warner Bros. Discovery could sell off CNN. It is probably the least integrated component of the entire Warner Bros. Discovery company. You can't sell DC Comics because that's Superman and Batman right there. You'd be an idiot to sell your video game division because that's probably one of your most profitable divisions you have. You're not going to sell your TV studio or your movie studio. What can you sell? You could probably sell CNN. But David, does anybody want to buy CNN? There's a lot in play here. And also, I want to go ahead and add licked isn't the patsy he's the patsy's patsy which is an important thing to keep in mind here he's taking his marching orders from someone who is taking their marching orders from someone in their 80s who should not be giving marching orders anymore we all know people who are that age we love them god bless them but let's be honest they are not the ones who should be saying hey this is how you run a major corporation at this point that's just the reality of the situation with cnn in particular somebody saw this coming what was his name role 
Jason Kyler saw that coming. Exactly. Tried to modernize CNN. He said, hey, let's create CNN Plus. It will not be successful at first, but that's okay. I have seen the numbers. I have seen the rate of progression on cord cutting. And I know we have to set something up so that we are not completely reliant on this old timey system of media consumption. So he sets up CNN Plus and we have now watched CNN's ratings drop and drop and drop. And then after a recent town hall debacle, they're now the fourth most watched news service. And let's be honest, most people in America can't name three news services. So that's a problem right there, wouldn't you say? Well, now you have the fact that they don't have a digital component. They don't have a streaming app that can entice younger viewers. So really the only value of CNN at this moment is the scary one. And that is you could have somebody come in and just try and buy it basically to run it into the ground over the next two years and use it as a way to flip the 2024 election because we're not going to talk about it, but there was another historic news thing this week and the coverage on how people address that topic Topic could influence the outcome of a presidential election. So that's really the only monetary value CNN has in the short term as a broadcast network. As a publisher, excellent content. Still exceptional, the gold standard in the industry. But people don't value that the way they do broadcasting. Meanwhile, as the Actors Guild inches toward their own strike against the studios, directors are voting on a deal struck last week. There's some rumblings from the rank and file that the deal isn't good enough. The voting for the directors must be completed by June 23rd. So we'll know in a couple of weeks if the studios gave up enough to keep those directors happy. It would be quite a blow to the studios if the DGA actually voted against the deal that their negotiating committee had negotiated. I'm not actually worried about that yet. I mean, anything can happen, but it strikes me that the directors, as usual, know how to play ball here. And they use the fact that the American Motion Picture Association needed to make a deal to their advantage. The deal for directors is outstanding. Anyone who's saying it's not good enough is just being unreasonable about what to expect. I actually view this as a masterstroke deal for the Directors Guild. What has happened is AMP is participating in a kind of bargaining where they're pitting three different parties against each other. And it's like the first one who makes a deal gets the best offer. The one who gets the second gets the second best offer. And then whatever's left, you're just going to take because at that point, you're the one holding up the strike. So they have used that bargaining power to just give directors the best possible deal. And as usual, directors know how to play ball. That's how you become a director in Hollywood. Very, very clever on their part. The actors, the situation isn't as simple. There aren't that many directors in this business. That's how you know you've made it if you're directing a motion picture. Every film has dozens, if not hundreds of actors. So there's a lot more people in play here. You have to think about hench person number three more than you do about the director. So getting a deal with the Actors Guild requires more negotiations, but that is what they're hoping happens because they really don't want to give in to the demands of writers because this industry devalues writers. That's where we're at right now. The directors did get some concessions related to residuals based on overseas streaming, but there's speculation that it wasn't enough. And there's some thought as well that there might be a most favorite nations clause in this agreement where should the studios, the AMPTP, negotiate an even better or more preferable deal with the actors or the writers, that that deal would then also carry over to the DGA contract. So there was some interest in the directors just taking what they had right now with the expectation maybe that further negotiations by the other guilds would in fact improve the current deal that they have. But the writers and actors will tell you that their concerns are go much deeper than just that aspect of residuals, that they have a lot more concerns, concerns that were not addressed in the DGA contract, and that just because the directors have made a deal doesn't really influence at all their concerns. The uh, writers are still very strongly entrenched in their views. It looks like there's been no give on either side on that front and no 
real negotiations happening. So we are still looking at a very long strike. And the actors themselves have actually given a strike authorization. So the clock has started ticking on uh, negotiations. If those negotiations don't bear fruit in the next few weeks, the actors will be going on strike as well. And if the writers hadn't already shut down Hollywood, which they have, the actors going on strike certainly will. So it doesn't matter if the directors have a deal or not. There's not going to be any work to be had in Hollywood for a long time unless the actors and writers get a deal as well. And that's what I'm saying. It's really going to be a two against one scenario here where everything is fine as long as writers and actors are working in tandem. But if one of them cuts a deal, that puts the pressure on the third party to go ahead and accept basically anything because then they're the ones holding up the entire industry. And while everyone says right now they won't do that, once the crux of the pressure is on you, people tend to collapse in negotiations. So it really does come down to what happens in the next couple of weeks. You're saying the writer's strike is going to go on a long time and it absolutely could, but if the Actors Guild works a deal in June, all the pressure, and I mean all the pressure, goes on the writers to come back to the table and agree to less. So there's a lot in play here, and the Directors Guild hasn't made any friends because it did what it always did. It only looked out for its own interests, which frankly is what it should do, but directors mainly care about money. They were happy with the deal they had already. I mean, everybody has complaints, but they already had a sweetheart deal, and so now they have an even even sweeter heart deal. What happens next will go a long way in determining the length of this entire mess. And the move towards ad-supported streaming continues to accelerate. Zumo, the joint venture between Comcast and Charter, announced that they'd be replacing TCL's own fast channels on upcoming TCL TVs. And even Amazon is exploring launching an ad-supported streaming service. Wait, did they killed Freebie? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, jury duty. Oh no. So um, even Amazon doesn't know that they have freebie? Is that right? <laughs> that seems to be the case. Tim, remind us, how did you end up watching Jury Duty? So once I found it, discovered it existed, I saw it was on Freebie. So I'm like, okay, I, I guess I have to look at Freebie. So I got their app. And then I was wondering, like, wait a minute. I looked at Amazon's video on, on desktop and saw it there. So then I went, I got the Prime Video app. And lo and behold, if you scroll down a bit, and you'll see a section that says free with ads. And there was Jury Duty among their other shows. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. So what you're saying is that you ended up watching free ad-supported streaming content on Amazon Prime. Essentially, yes. Which is exactly what Amazon is considering launching, a service that already exists. This, I think, shows the utter chaos that is Amazon's streaming strategy. In fact, I mentioned last week that I'd watched Licorice Pizza on Amazon Prime. It was presented to me as an MGM Plus presentation. So does that mean I have access to MGM Plus? Am I subscribed to MGM Plus? I'm not entirely sure. But it is yet another streaming service from Amazon. I wonder if maybe they, in fact, have multiple different divisions at the company, each one tasked with initiating their own streaming service. And the folks over at Freevee don't necessarily talk to the folks over at Prime Video, yet the Freevee content shows up on Prime Video. And now the folks over at Freevee are saying, wait, you guys want to launch a free ad supported streaming service? Isn't that what we do? It's very confusing. Of course, all of this is a drop in the bucket before the behemoth that is Netflix. New data this week suggested that Netflix's crackdown on password sharing is paying off. We'll debate that in a moment. Well, we just saw some data reporting that Netflix saw the highest rate of signups in years, higher even than during the pandemic. I don't think my ex-wife will be one of those signups anytime soon. And that's kind of the point here. You're looking at something from a limited perspective. The person used a shaky analytic to say, hey, we're seeing an increase in signups. What they didn't say is how many people canceled Netflix over this? And anecdotally, there seems to be a metric ton of those. As a matter of fact, just in my family, I've had, gosh, three conversations in three days about this because my family members are like, wait, am I on your Netflix? Am I on your brother's Netflix? We got to get this straightened out because nobody knows who what is. Some people are adding for $7.99 a month, but other people are canceling. And when they cancel, they're canceling for more than $7.99 a month. So this might actually be either a zero-sum game or a loss. 
We won't know this until Netflix does its next fiscal quarter report. Uh, but I do have some good news. It turns out that Comcast threw me a lifeline as they announced last week that Comcast internet subscribers will be getting Peacock for free for two years. Subscribers who have gig speed internet from Xfinity will be able to get Peacock premium at no cost for two years. Free is about what Peacock's is worth, if we're honest. Uh, <laughs> that's both a main joke and a fact of life because NBC Universal is valued at that. I frequently am getting emails right now saying, hey, we'll give you a year for $20, which is basically less than $2 a month. So they're so desperate to get people watching their ad-supported version of Peacock. They almost don't care if you're paying for it or not. They just need to boost their subscriber numbers. Otherwise, if they don't have Peacock thriving and they don't get Hulu, there isn't a plan C on the board right now, which is why everybody's looking at them and looking at Max and going, I guess there's going to be a shotgun marriage there in nine months. There's so many things in play here and most of them don't speak well of NBC Universal or Warner Brothers Discovery. So wouldn't it be fascinating if they married and what would be, you know, one of the most toxic relationships that didn't involve Britney Spears? All right, Tim, how about you tell us a little bit about the box office? Yep. Last weekend, we were excited to see that Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse was blowing up. It came in with a weekend of 120.6 million, which is just absolutely fantastic. And this weekend, we're... We're seeing it down a little bit. We have Friday box office. We're recording this on Saturday. So it's 16.6 million for the second weekend, which is a 68% drop from Friday to Friday, which I get, you know, to be expected when it's when it's a highly anticipated sequel, but it'll be across 200 million on Saturday. It's already going to surpass the first one, which is just something we've always said, how the quality of the first one sells tickets to the second. And that's just exactly what's happening here. And it's just great to see. Absolutely. I'm super excited to see these numbers. And I think it is complete evidence that when you have a great first film, you actually gain audience for the second and you have an excited, enthusiastic audience at that. Yeah. With Saturday's box office, it's going to pass the first one, 190.1 million domestically. It had such insane word of mouth. It was great that people were just so excited for it when they when they saw it in theaters. And then a lot of people who didn't see it caught it on streaming and just absolutely loved it. So they knew they were going to buy tickets to the theater to see this, the second one. And yeah, that's just great to see because that's not common anymore in, in box office. Into the Spider-Verse, we kind of declared at the time was one of the most brain-breaking successes in recent memory because it's an animated movie. It is a Spider-Man animated movie, and there really isn't a recent analog for that. You look at things like, let's say, Star Wars. People don't realize this. There was a Star Wars Clone Wars animated release. How did that do, Tim? Uh, there was. Exactly. So, yeah, that's how these things usually go. This is working like a legitimate blockbuster as if it weren't animated, as if it were just an actual film. And on top of that, the second film has outperformed the first film financially and in terms of quality. I would have believed the former because the last film was so good and you know we have that box office belief but the second part that is just impossible because into the spider-verse is an incredible mm -hmm. origin story incredible and now they've done something else here and it's that much better and i mean the raise in quality reminds me forcibly of what happened between mission impossible 2 and mission impossible 3 which is about the highest praise i can give for something <laughs> it really is yeah, I remember when, when Into the Spider-Verse came out, it was December and I was like, I had no interest in seeing it. And then all I heard through the month of December was how amazing this is. So I said, okay, I, it's enough people are saying it's amazing. I need to go, go see it. And yeah, I was just straight up blown away by how, how good it was. I was like, wait, this is just incredible. And yeah, it's, it's going to beat the original in nine days because it is two different box office periods. Into the Spider-Verse was December in the pre-pandemic period, of course, where it was a slow build. It legged out through the holidays and into January. And this, of course, we're now into June. So obviously it's a you know bigger box office period but we knew that it was going to have a much bigger opening. And then, yeah, just to cross 200 million in nine days, which beats the original one, that's just incredible. The other thing I want to do here is I want to put it in 
slightly different terms to drive the point home. Again, we're talking about an animated movie, and yet its box office is running eerily similar to Thor Love and Thunder. It's mm-hmm. like basically like half a day of box office behind that pace after eight days. And I think before all said and done, it's going to approach that total, if not surpass it domestically. And again, one's animated, one isn't. One has Christian Bell, one doesn't. None of this makes sense, but that's how great this film is. Imagine a Marvel animated movie. Imagine just that that existing and then imagine it doing numbers similar to an MCU film. And then you just feel like, no, that's not possible. That, But this is what they did with Spider-Man. And just that's how good these movies are. But new this weekend, we have Transformers Rise of the Beasts coming in with 25.6 million for Friday. Uh, 8.8 million of that was Thursday. So yeah, it is the top film on Friday ahead of Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. But I'm kind of surprised they're resurrecting this franchise. I, I did see advertising saying, oh, it's the best one since the first one, which is technically correct, the best kind of correct, because looking at Rotten Tomatoes (laughs) scores, yeah, the first one, 2007, 57%, and then... 20%, 35% 20%, 35% fresh, 18% fresh, 16% fresh, and now 53% fresh for Rise of the Beast. So yeah, I guess they're right there. Wasn't Bumblebee actually pretty well reviewed? And Bum- I remember- B- Bumblebee is actually 91%, but yeah, that, that's okay. more of a spinoff rather than, than a sequel. Yes, despite the presence of John Cena, 91% fresh. <laughs> and probably his best box office hit to date, sadly enough, which means <laughs> not at all. But anyway, that's kind of what's remarkable to me about what we're talking about here. This again circles back to Spider-Man where- We've got these mega, big-budget action films, Fast X and Transformers Reboot, and it is going to be neck-and-neck between Spider-Man's second weekend and Transformers' first weekend, and then after that, Transformers is going to die screaming. By the way, just to be clear, if you haven't seen it yet, and I think by the time you hear this podcast, you will have, this isn't the resurrection of one franchise, it's the resurrection of two Hasbro franchises. I swear to God, somebody thought that was a good idea. So they're trying just way, way, way too much here out of pure greed. It's like Zaslav is running the company. (laughs) It's not going to be the least bit competitive with Spider-Man. And the other number we want to give you is Spider-Man, as we said, is going to cross 200 million today, which will be its ninth day in theaters. After nine days in theaters, Fast X hadn't reached 100 million yet. There was a headline the other day that Fast X is in worst case scenario territory for its domestic box office. I didn't write that, but I could have. This film cost a metric ton of cash, and I think it's going to leave theaters in the red. I really do, which is impossible for one of the most popular international franchises. Oh, man. Yeah. Reported budget of about $200 million. Now, I, I remember writing a thing for Box Office Profits a few years ago when we were doing top 10 industry stories for, for the year and how international box office, especially China, was taking over. And I I distinctly said, when you're wondering why we're getting Transformers 7 and Fast and Furious 12, this is why. And look at that. We have Transformers and Fast and Furious movies in theaters that are not doing all that great and which these exist because of international box office, which is now not the same that it was five, six, seven years ago. Right. The pandemic collapsed the international marketplace in just a profound way. Mm -hmm. And Tim's talking about, just to be clear, Transformers budget of 200 million. Fast X has a reported budget before marketing spend of $340 million. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. It might finish in the 700 to 750 million range. There is no way no way they can make back their money. And also, who agreed to $340 million for this completely unwanted project, which, by the way, does the same thing across the Spider-Verse does. It sets up for a direct sequel. No. No, no, no. Worldwide total to date for Fast X. Latest information we have, $636 million. Not ideal, considering what that cost. You really need somewhere between a factor of three and 3.5 beyond the budget to turn a profit before it exits theaters. Now, films make a lot more money after their theatrical release, which is really just a glorified marketing campaign. But this is bad. I mean, really, really bad. And God help whoever's in charge of the marketing campaign for Fast X 2. <laughs> 
it's real tim stop laughing it, it, i know uh, i i know i know it is that's 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 why it's funny elsewhere we'll throw one more mention in with uh, the little mermaid crossing 200 million domestically to 212.8 million as a friday so yeah excellent to see disney again killing it with their live action adaptations domestically it's actually really really suffering overseas its budget is somewhere between probably let's just go ahead and say 225 million and its global take after this weekend may or may not reach 400 million so it's going to be a net loser in theaters as well because of fake reviews internationally absolutely wiping out the box off of I've been following that story it's been amazing really? I am wow. being Rotten Tomatoes have gotten smart about this they have locked out people who are clearly just trolling with zero star reviews overseas that's not the case and in one extreme example it was either France or Germany I'm not looking at my notes it had a 0.7 out of 10 grade which is ridiculous for this movie which is great I mean the film itself spectacular but the review bombing just destroyed it Mm -hmm. people were like I'm not going to go see that based on reviews and they're only finding out later it's really good now I'm curious to see what happens with Disney Plus when it when it arrives there do we have any idea when that might be yet probably let's see um, they've been doing a three to four month window lately they've moved away from the 45 days Mm -hmm. so August or September would be my guess Okay, we do have a tentpole top-heavy box office once again, which we kind of expected when it's we're in the summer. It's generally one big release and maybe something smaller. Like last week, The Boogeyman came in third with twelve point three million. You know, last weekend the number six movie was still a Super Mario Brothers movie, three point three million, and that's now on streaming. So yeah, it, it falls off hard after that. But box office generally is still better than where I thought it would be. Yeah, not too bad unless you're a big franchise like Transformers or Fast. So go ahead and take us into the ratings. Sure. We're looking at the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, May 8th to Sunday, May 14th, 2023. And it is a generally quiet week. We have, but we have one, one show unsurprisingly and two movies, quite surprisingly, crossing a billion minutes, and and then not much else, but let's see what's here. On the original chart, the top show, of course, is Queen Charlotte, A Bridgerton Story, uh, about 1.9 billion minutes for six episodes. Not a surprise, the first full week of its availability takes a big jump, and enough to tie people over until, I guess, we get Bridgerton Season 3, which I assume is in the works. Well, maybe, maybe not, given the Maybe, maybe strike. not, depending on the strike, I on the suppose. the strike, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's, I guess, a quantifier for just about everything at this point. Uh, second, Firefly Lane, 697 million minutes. So, yeah, just a big drop from there. Up to third, Ted Lasso from Apple TV+, Plus, 31 episodes, 670 million minutes. I keep joking about it, but it's clearly the extra long episodes are actually beneficial to the, the Nielsen ratings here because it's, it, you know... It certainly adds to their hours, yeah. Yeah, that's that's their, to their minutes min, min viewed, and there was anticipation for it this is this is the end still a couple more episodes to go for the finale at the end of the month so yeah i, I think it is actually having a non-zero effect on its numbers because that's definitely higher than we than we've seen it usually doesn't get this high on the chart when we saw it with the second season this is exciting i wonder maybe as the final episode airs which is in it looks like three more weeks just how high ted lasso can actually hit this is apple tv plus's up until recently only show that has ever made it onto the Nielsen charts and it's inching its way. It's already in the top three of originals. Can it hit number one? You know, looking at what Netflix has to come at the end of the month, it's going to be very close. It looks like Fubar might be a, not a huge hit, but a decent hit. So that may be the, the top show and could potentially deny Ted Lasso, but it's going to be very, very close. The weekly shows always do get that little bit of a the binge bump, as we've been, been calling it, towards the end. So I'm, I'm curious if that's probably the most interesting thing that's going to happen on the ratings over the next few weeks. New and fourth is Missing, Dead, or Alive. Just, you know, one of those documentary type shows that Netflix puts out. The description here, follow officers from a South Carolina Sheriff's Department as they urgently search for individuals who've disappeared under troubling circumstances. Sounds terrible. Thanks. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Thanks. I hate it. Yep. Fifth from, also from Netflix, Sweet Tooth. We've seen that for a few weeks now, 575 minutes. That will get a third season. Six from Prime Video, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, also wrapping up its series through the month of May, 447 million minutes for 41 total episodes. Seventh, back to Netflix, The Diplomat. Been here for a few weeks now, 441 million minutes. And then probably the, the three most interesting shows are the 8th, ninth, and 10th ones. Uh, the success of Queen Charlotte has brought Bridgerton back to the chart, 413 million minutes for 16 episodes. Again, this season two is now over a year old. So it just, yeah. people said, oh, okay, I'll, 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 I'll watch Bridgerton again, I guess. 
Yeah, that is interesting, actually. Yeah. I'm assuming, and I don't know, that you don't have to watch Bridgerton to watch Queen Charlotte. I could not tell you. I couldn't either. Okay. We've watched season one of Bridgerton and that's it. <laughs> that is interesting in the context that if Queen Charlotte had simply been presented as an additional season of Bridgerton, its ratings would have been even higher. In fact, you've combined those numbers. We're looking at 2.2 right. billion minutes. So the fact that it, Queen Charlotte was seen as a spinoff and a, an entirely separate show um, makes it different. But this is closer, in fact, to what Netflix gives us on their charts, where in fact they they show us every show as a separate season. So yes. I don't know how legitimate it is for them to bundle seasons together like this. That seems to artificially inflate the numbers on Nielsen, but there's a lot wrong with the way Nielsen counts things. Yeah, of course. It's limited data, but it's the best we have to work with at the moment. Uh, amusingly, looking at Netflix's chart for this week. Yeah, Queen Charlotte is, of course, one. Bridgerton season one is fifth on their chart, and season two is ninth. So it's small, much smaller numbers than what Queen Charlotte did. But I just like that people were like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. I, I watch this, and or I watch Bridgerton again. Or it could be reverse. I rewatch Bridgerton before I watch this, just, just in case I had to. Synergy. I like it. In ninth, a new Queer Eye, 387 million minutes for 58 total episodes. The seventh and latest season of this edition of the show dropped on May 12th with seven new episodes. The previous season was actually the end of December 2021, and I can't remember if we saw it then. We, we might have very briefly. So it's been a while since the new, new season, but that was enough to get it back on the chart here. And in 10th, Queen Cleopatra, 340 million minutes. Initially, I thought this may have been here because people searched Netflix for Queen, and after Queen Charlotte, up came Queen Cleopatra. But this is actually a, a new series that arrived on May 10th, basically a docuseries on the historical figure produced by Jada Pinkett Smith. Yeah, it was new, and I believe reviews were really, really bad, but hey, Ooh. whatever. Okay. Curiously, double-checking it, the Wikipedia counts it as a second season of a show called African Queens, but here it's counted as its own series. Yeah, I don't know if people would know that there was another series or season or whatever. They seem to just be standalones if, if you want them to be. Okay. Movies is excitingly led by The Mother. 1.4 billion minutes for Jennifer Lopez not getting married and instead going like, what, John Wick? Yes. It arrived on May 12th, so just in time for Mother's Day weekend. So that's just a three-day number, and that's that's one of the bigger numbers for movies that we've seen in quite some time, because these num these numbers have not been too great, and I'll just hold that thought for a moment. Yes, exactly. But yeah, I guess people enjoy seeing J-Lo in, in movies where she gets married, and they enjoy seeing her <laughs> go J-Lo Wick. <laughs> Yeah, not not well reviewed. Forty three percent fresh or Rotten Tomatoes, but that's we're kind of used to that with Netflix. It's got that Netflix sheen, and people excuse that. Yeah, that's pretty pretty standard for you know what <laughs> yeah, what you yeah. can expect from one of their films. Yeah, all right. Uh, in second, we saw it premiere last week. A Man Called Otto, one point two billion minutes for the the Tom Hanks movie. So wow, two movies cracking a billion for Netflix. Wow, that is impressive. And then everything falls off a cliff. A couple new things, but some things we've seen before. Uh, in third was here last week, The Crudes, 312 million minutes. So yeah, we go from 1.2 billion to 312 million. In fourth, something new, Que Viva Mexico, 298 million minutes for this Spanish language comedy that was a theatrical release in Mexico in March and then dropped on Netflix on the 11th. Awesome. The power of the international market is just is always impressive to me for Netflix. And fifth, we saw that returning last week because it arrived on May 1st. Pitch Perfect, 210 million minutes. Uh, and then the first of two things that I have no explanation for in six, credited to Netflix and Paramount Plus, G.I. Joe Retaliation, 183 million minutes. So, yeah, we're in sixth and we're sub 200 million minutes. Who boy. And we cannot credit the Transformers movie for this. Oh, spoiler. Because that movie wasn't out yet at the time. <laughs> Is it really a spoiler, though? I guess. If anyone cares. If anyone cared, yeah. But if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't. And then in 7th, 8th, and 9th, we have Disney Plus content. But the top movie for Disney Plus for the week, not what you'd expect, Spider-Man Homecoming, 178 million minutes. I got nothing because this this is 
too early but, to be pre-gaming for Across the Spider-Verse. And if it was, why would you watch this one? David, remind me, but I think Disney made a big fuss about how they just then had all the Spider-Man movies on Disney Plus right around this time. Yeah, Disney made a huge deal of the fact that they acquired this and the ability to stream Indiana Jones, which was previously available on Paramount Plus and to the best of my knowledge still is. So these are joint ventures and we're going to see more of this when Disney has purchased something that already had contract requirements. They're going to honor them, but they're also going to show it on their service. All I'll say here, Spider-Man Homecoming is one of the most underrated Marvel movies to date. It completely rebuilt the franchise, and a lot of the success we're seeing today stems from the fact that Michael Keaton was perfect casting then. The Spider-Man movies, because they're produced by Sony, Sony right. tend to float around, and yep. even the Indiana Jones movies, Disney does oh, not have okay. full yep. ownership right. of them. So yeah. This went to the Wikipedia page. It became available in the United States on Disney Plus on May 12th. Okay. And then in 8th and 9th, we have the Evergreen Disney Plus content, Moana, 174 million minutes, Encanto, 173. They probably pull in around anywhere from this number to 200 million every single week, and then just depends on the ebb and flow of the movies chart in this case, which is kind of terrible, but there they are. And then in 10th, for some reason, Heat. 160 million. Yes. The, for some reason, the 1995 Michael Mann film starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. This didn't appear to have just shown up on, on Netflix at, at this point or on, on May 1st, but maybe it's just because these numbers are so pathetic. It just floated to the top the way Nielsen calculates these things. You got me. Acquired is 10 shows we have seen before this week, led by NCIS, 875 million minutes. I will point out we have the return of Rick and Morty in eighth, credited to HBO Max, which I guess we can start calling Max as of next week's ratings, and Hulu, 464 million minutes for 61 episodes. It's ironic that it was just around that time that I started re-watching the latest season of Rick and Morty. I suspect it's more than just a coincidence. I happened to have been on Hulu, and as I was scrolling through content, I saw that they had Rick and Morty, and so I watched it. And so clearly, that newness that you see when you see a show presented to you by the app works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how Netflix gets all these these movies on, on this chart, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, best I can tell is since the most recent season was September through December 2022, that did these possibly just show up or do they release it as, as it airs? I think that's the distinction here where I think Hulu has them immediately as they air and HBO Max might have just gotten them after the season ended. Okay, yeah, because we have seen it before extremely infrequently, but I think it might have been the same the same deal as, as around the time that a season arrived on one or both of the, of the services. Uh, other than that, you know, Bluey up to second, Cocomelon in third, Better Call Saul, Succession still in seventh as that show also nears its finale, 507 million minutes. I'm curious to see what sort of bump if any that one gets when it when it concludes but yeah just generally outside of those one big show and two big movies not the most exciting week in in ratings and i think we kind of expected that because the last month or so of what's new we were like well that's it didn't seem like it was very exciting times for streaming and i kind of hope things get better soon yeah i'm almost wondering if like some of these big numbers we're seeing for like the j-lo film and and others are just because there's nothing else for people to really watch that's new yeah exactly people want new stuff and that's probably why they see jennifer lopez they see tom hanks and and they watch that you need you need those big stars still yeah this is the entire problem the industry faces summarized in this chart and that is people are more likely to cancel if they don't have new good content but Companies lose a lot of money when they spend too much on good new content. What's the solution? Everyone's looking at everyone else, hoping they figure it out. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Tim, for that great discussion. In our green lights and cancellations this week, the well-regarded reboot of Perry Mason on HBO and HBO Max starring Matthew Reese has been canceled after two seasons. Because the new good content costs too much money. (laughs) Yeah. It was a period show set, I believe, in the 1930s, which immediately makes it more expensive to produce. So I'm not surprised that if it doesn't bring in massive ratings and I mean, like House of the Dragon ratings, it's just not going to survive. On Amazon Prime Video, the renaissance of Angry Birds is underway as the streamer has ordered a new animated series, Angry Birds Mystery Island. Because Amazon knows people want good new content. (laughs) Do they? However... 
my question is, will this appear on Amazon Prime Video, on MGM Plus, on Freebie, or on the as yet unnamed fast service? <laughs> well, I will note for no particular reason that you can also watch these episodes on Amazon Kids Plus. Okay. What, what the hell is that? I don't know. It's the first it's the first I've read of it, but apparently it's a thing. Get your house in order, Amazon. Come on. <laughs> And on Disney Plus, the inevitable has come to pass as there's talk of a Hocus Pocus 3 in the works. As a reminder, Hocus Pocus 2 broke records for a streaming movie last year. So this is about as surprising as, well, you're waking up in the morning. As always, we wrap up with what's been keeping us busy over the last week. And while I'm not quite finished with it yet, I've been reading a book called Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. It is about a young woman who basically is able to turn silver into gold. It's kind of a Rumpelstiltskin story, but not really. I think that's probably the inspiration, but she is taken to a very, very cold land where she and two other women sort of start to unite to save their own world. And it is extremely engaging. Characters are wonderful. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I always like when we take fairy tales, even if it's very loosely inspired by a fairy tale and turn it on its head. So highly recommend this book and basically anything by Naomi Novik because she is fantastic. Raul, how about you? Last week, I caught up on the Jeopardy Masters tournament on Hulu. All episodes which aired on ABC earlier this year are are now available on Hulu. I'm a Jeopardy super fan, as they call them. I love the show and I really enjoy the Masters tournament, although I'm frustrated by the fact that they seem to invent a new tournament almost every year now. Is it the greatest of all time tournament or is it a tournament of champions? Now it's the Masters tournament, but can you really call it the Masters tournament when what they did was they brought back six of the biggest champions from only the last couple of seasons? So it's not all the greats of Jeopardy, but it is, I would say, all great contestants. I love them all. That included James Holzhauser, Matt Amodio, Amy Schneider, Matteo Roach, Sam Buttry, and Andrew He. They're all great. The competition was hosted by Ken Jennings, who I stand fast in my opinion that he is the best of the current Jeopardy hosts. And James, who presents himself as a game show villain, that is how he is introduced <laughs> every episode. He actually uh, own, owns that. It's just hysterical to watch him. It is. And he taunts Ken Jennings almost every time, even in his final Jeopardy answers, as James tends to always run away with the competition, gets to write down anything he wants as his final Jeopardy answer. He usually writes a taunt to Ken Jennings, but that's only because Ken has beaten James in the past in the Greatest of All Time tournament. So uh, as you would see in wrestling, and you guys would know this, James wants a rematch and Ken doesn't feel he owes James anything. And so <laughs> they taunt each other. In fact, James came on stage during one of one of the rounds with a wrestling championship belt. He wants that rematch so he can show uh, show up uh, Ken, but I really feel if they were to have that rematch, Ken would beat him again. Ultimately, yes, it was Jeopardy. It was great Jeopardy with some of the hardest rounds I have ever witnessed. At this point, it just makes me feel dumb to watch, but I still love it. And I love Jeopardy when all the contestants are in the zone and playing so well. And the Jeopardy Masters tournament was exactly Exactly that. Again, you can watch all episodes on Hulu now. Awesome, Raul. Tim, how about you? I uh, spent a little time this week with a game I came across a couple weeks ago that released on June 1st called Killer Frequency. It is basically a, I guess you can call it a puzzle game, but the setup is it is 1980s. You are a overnight radio DJ in a very small town in the middle of nowhere. The entirety of the police department, which is three people, are either dead or incapacitated. And the 911 operator leaves to seek help and decides to route all calls to you because you are broadcasting on the radio in the town as a apparently a serial killer is somehow running loose in the town. People call up and ask for your help to escape from him. And you have to basically guide them through the situation they're in so that they survive. 
the first one example is someone is trapped in their car without their keys and they need the way you start it. So you find a book somewhere that happens to be in the in the radio station because there's a car talk style show that explains how to hotwire a car and you need to give them the exact instructions to start the car. If you select the wrong option, it will you know turn the car alarm on alerting the killer to their location and they will die. It is entirely first person perspective. You only see the radio station. The only other person you see is the silhouette of your producer who has locked themselves in their booth because there's a serial killer on the loose, but it is very well voice acted. It is come up with some clever puzzles. There's good banter. There's original 80s-ish music that you are supposed to play during the interim as as you guide these people through. And it's it's very fun. It's only supposed to be about maybe four or five hour long. Maybe you have to replay it once or twice to see what happens if everyone lives or if you're a sadistic person, everyone dies. But it's very entertaining so far. And, and I hope to go through it again this weekend. That reminds me, Tim, of the rather popular steam party game keep talking and nobody explodes yeah that is that was actually the achievement you got for that first first mission it was called <laughs> it was called keep talking and nobody dies if you successfully guide the person to start the car and, and escape but there's other things like you're given a map of the office the person is in and you need to make sure that you have a way to distract the killer to send them to another room and then tell the person which room to go to to avoid them and and then i accidentally had to be quiet for a thing but a time limited decision came up and i clicked it and then i was not supposed to do that and then the person got <laughs> caught <laughs> and was killed. It is not graphic only in the sense of you hear audibly hear the person die. But other than that, it's so it's not like gory or, or gross or anything like that. But yeah, that's exactly this type of setup. And I hope they come up with more clever puzzles as the game continues. Fantastic. Okay. And David. So we actually didn't watch much this week, which we'd done a better job of keeping up recently until now. So what I've mainly been doing is watching a couple of kinds of YouTube videos. One of them is I've beaten Resident Evil 4 Remake at this point, and I'm fascinated by the depth and cleverness of the game. And we've been watching like fell videos for Resident Evil 4 Remake. And for whatever reason, they're hysterical. The developers really have thought of pretty much everything. And so people are testing boundaries to like break the game. There's one where you can actually pick Ashley up and carry around like luggage seriously she turns on her side and you carry her through levels make speed running easier there's all kinds of fun things like that and then just random deaths where zombies do unexpected things i'm in love with it the other thing we've been watching which probably won't be for everyone but kim and i overly identify with it is a youtube channel called plush time wins because kim and i famously would go to cedar point where she would play whack-a-mole so much that her wrists would hurt and we would leave with so many tickets and if there had been youtube at the time we would have developed a loyal following for that because she changes when whack-a-mole is involved she gets violent and aggressive this is kind of like that where all they do is they play arcade games over and over again like claw machines and the like it's a lot of fun and it's very upbeat i will say that one of them has a voice that will prove divisive to some it, it can be annoying and both of them comment incessantly even i think they talk too much but it's just fun and there's just something very carnival-esque about it that brings me a lot of pleasure well let's be fair david those moles had it coming that's kim's story we still have yes like, they did yeah we still have stuff on shelves that she won at cedar point in like 2005 seriously <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to streaming into the void please consider subscribing via apple podcasts google podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at streamingvoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash streamingvoid. Be sure to watch for us again next week. 